Hello, I'm Azora High, and I do not approve this message. Stop watching. Stop. You. Right now. Stop. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn these lights off. Turn this camera off. Nothing was more unpopular about the rather unpopular ending of HBO's Game of Thrones than the decision to climax the story with Jon Snow stabbing Daenerys Targaryen through the heart. It seemed awful upon first viewing, and upon further reflection, well, it got worse, actually. Yes, that's right, the wrongness of it revealed itself on a couple of levels in particular. Number one. Violence against women and murder in general, which we've had a lot of in this series, was held up as the ultimate solution to the final problem of the story. Mmm. Not a good look. And number two, the character who did the most to help uplift the downtrodden for seven and a half seasons was inexplicably and suddenly transformed into a murderous tyrant, to such a degree that again, murdering her was presented as the only answer. Going further, it seemed a very strange way to echo the all-important A Song of Ice and Fire legend of Azor High, Nissanissa, and Lightbringer. John did stab Danny through the heart, just as Azor High stabbed Nissanissa through the heart, but this wasn't done to forge a magic sword to defeat the others and protect the living. Danny wasn't willingly sacrificing herself to save humanity, as Nissa Nissa supposedly did when she agreed to give her life to forge Lightbringer. John stabbed Danny because she had been transformed into Dragon Hitler, basically. And again, this seems a very odd way to echo the Azor Ahai myth. In fact, I believe a closer look at the Azor Ahai myth, such as we're going to take today, will show very clearly that the John Stabbing Danny HBO ending is not something we will see in the book version of the ending. I'd actually go so far as to say that the Lightbringer myth is a kind of moral relativism test for the reader, one which David Benioff and Dan Weiss, the writers and showrunners for HBO's Game of Thrones, failed with flying colors, I'm sorry to say. But even setting the HBO show aside, and I do like to set it aside, I think what George is doing with the Azor High and Nissanissa story is presenting us with two potential heroic ideals. One false, and one true. So hello there friends, it's Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and I'm here dressed as Fear and Loathing in Valeria to tell you about Azor High and how he's actually not the hero. Thanks to all of you who've recently joined our Patreon campaign, and to everyone who's liked, shared, and left comments on the videos. The channel is growing strong of late, and it feels awesome. Check out LucifermeansLightbringer.com for more about Patreon and everything else mythical astronomy. And of course, make sure you subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss a video or a live stream, like the five-hour marathon I did at the end of May. So what is this moral test that D&D failed? Well, it's actually just a simple question of what constitutes heroism in Martin's world, as well as what Martin's views are on cyclical violence. The original hero of A Song of Ice and Fire legend was Azor Ahai, the man credited with ending the long night and returning light and love to the world. And that's why I've got my hippie Azor Ahai getup. I'm returning light and love to the world. We bring you love. We bring you peace. And of course, two of the heroes of the current story, Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen, are clearly meant to be perceived as Azor Ahai Reborn. Whatever that means, and what that means exactly is intentionally left vague. Here's where it gets sticky, though. Azor Ahai is a particularly nasty sort of hero from a particularly nasty sort of place who does particularly nasty sorts of things. And I believe that the heroic ideal he expresses is a false one. 
It's not my nose, it's a false one. Whether or not we fall for it, well, that's the test. Said another way, hasn't it ever bothered you that Azor High had to stab his wife to save the world? If so, good. It bothered me too the first time I heard the myth, and it bothered Davos when he heard the story. And heck, it even bothered Salador San to tell Davos the story. And that's to say nothing of cracking open the moon, he adds. Let's take a look at the key lines of the Lightbringer myth. A hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade, and as it glowed white-hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nissa Nissa, he said to her, for that was her name, bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why I cannot say, and Azor Ahai thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon, but her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes. Alright, so let's be clear, this is blood magic, absolutely. Human sacrifice in order to create a powerful, magical talisman. It's pretty much the formula that the Valerians seem to have followed to make Valerian steel. And while it's cool to have Valerian steel and all, or a Lightbringer sword, whose child or wife would you be willing to sacrifice to make it? Well, none, of course, because you probably don't practice blood magic. <laughs> of course, of course you don't. So here, then, is the test for the reader. Is human sacrifice, which is very clearly wrong in real life, somehow supposed to be justified in a fantasy story with magical ice demons? Is George R.R. R. Martin really telling us, well, sometimes you just have to do a little wife-stabbing and blood magic to save the day? I think it's very important to notice that the author first gives us the Azor High legend while we're in Davos's point of view, and upon hearing it, he gives us the correct, humane response to the story. A true sword of fire, now that would be a wonder to behold, yet at such a cost. When he thought of Nissa Nissa, it was his own Maria he pictured, a good-natured, plump woman with sagging breasts and a kindly smile. The best woman in the world. He tried to picture himself driving a sword through her and shuddered. I am not made of the stuff of heroes, he decided. If that was the price of a magic sword, it was more than he cared to pay. Now, I would submit that Davos is exactly the stuff of heroes, precisely for this kind of moral clarity. We see this at play when Davos convinces Stannis that he should actually turn north to help the Watch if he wants to be king. And by the way, that's exactly the same decision that Daenerys will eventually be faced with when she comes to Westeros and hears about the threat of the others. We also see Davos's heroism when he advocates against the sacrifice of Edric Storm to wake the stone dragon, saying that the life of one boy cannot and should not be sacrificed for the greater good. Stannis asks Davos, what is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? To which Davos softly replies, everything. That's the same idea as Davos being unwilling to sacrifice his own wife for a magic sword, even to save the world. And I believe that Martin hopes for and intends for the reader to see through this false ideal of the Azor High myth in a similar fashion. Be like Davos, in other words. So like I said, I did indeed react like Davos did upon hearing the forging of Lightbringer legend. I was certainly, and I'll use my Unicron voice, highly dubious of the idea that this guy was a hero, even before I noticed that Azor Ahai also cracked the moon open in addition to murdering his wife. Cracking the moon open is bad, okay? And in my opinion, it was probably the cause of the long night. Yes, that's right, any sort of celestial calamity which 
cracked a moon in the skies above Planetos would inevitably create moon meteors, and meteor impacts are absolutely capable of throwing up enough ash, soot, and debris so as to blot out the sun for years at a time. Sprinkle in a little magic as this is a fantasy world, and there you have it. You can get the full theory on this in my What Caused the Long Night video, but I will briefly tell you that we find a lot of evidence to corroborate this theory in some of the other ancient legends of Planetos. There's the Bloodstone Emperor myth from the Far East, which places a meteor impact right at the heart of the Long Night, and mentions Lightbringer and Azor High as well. There's the legend of Dawn and Starfall in Westeros, of course, which associates a sword that sounds a lot like Lightbringer with a magical meteorite. And most importantly, there's the Carthine Origin of Dragons myth that Danny hears in her third chapter of A Game of Thrones. That one's important because, just like the Azor High myth, it specifically mentions something about a cracking moon. The Carthine tale speaks of a once-existent second moon cracking open to give birth to dragons, while the Azor High myth speaks of the moon cracking open when Lightbringer was forged. But of course, viewers of this channel and students of world mythology will know that comets and meteors are often stylized as dragons and flaming swords in legends around the world, since, well, since legends have been written down. In other words, cracking moons make moon meteors, and moon meteors make long nights. Many thousands of years ago, it seems that something very destructive happened to a moon in the skies above the planetos, and the result was a rain of fiery meteors that reminded people of dragons and flaming swords as they fell to Earth. That's what these legends are saying in the language of myth. Here we have the perfect trigger mechanism for the Long Night, and all of these myths are directly tied to Lightbringer, dragons, and or the Long Night. So here's the thing, figuring out that the moon cracking part of the Lightbringer legend refers to a real astronomical event which caused the Long Night is very fun and exciting, and I had a lot of fun doing it, but it also led me right back to the idea that Azor High was no hero. That's right. It's actually a very simple train of logic. If cracking the moon created the long night, and if Azor High cracked the moon with his Lightbringer blood magic ritual, then, well, doesn't that make Azor High the one who caused the long night? And thus, not the hero? Controversy, I know. Heresy. For those of us who refuse to justify wife-stabbing for any reason, this comes as good news, actually. Martin would seem to be leaving us multiple clues that Azor's sacrifice of Nissa Nissa was no righteous deed. Another clue would be the fact that although the name Lightbringer sounds great and all, it's also synonymous with Lucifer. I read that somewhere on the internet. And look, Lucifer is actually just the Latin word for Venus, and it was only in 606 AD that Pope Gregory applied the word Lucifer to Satan, but still. Azor High stabbed his wife with a Lucifer sword, and I have to think that's yet another clue to think a little bit harder about the idea of Azor High as the hero. Along the same lines, the story of Azor High comes from a shy by the shadow, where they practice the very darkest forms of sorcery, such as shadow binding or necromancy. We are given four other names for the flaming sword hero besides Azor High, and most of them come from places that are also associated with very dark sorcery. Two of the names are borrowed from Michael Moorcock, Elric Shadow Chaser, and Hercoon the Hero. And they refer to, on one hand, a villainous sorcerer, Irkun, and a very dark sort of tragic anti-hero who tragically ends up murdering his wife and destroying his own empire, and that's Elric of Melnibony. All of this points to Azor High as just the sort of dark figure who would, well, murder his wife to gain magical power. We are left, then, with the Azor High tale being fairly confused. He killed Nissa Nissa and broke the moon, which I say caused the long night. But he's also somehow the hero. 
Uh, that's a hell of a redemption arc, even for George R. R. Martin. More clarity comes when we take a look at the other version of the Long Night Lightbringer story. The Bloodstone Emperor version, to be specific, which we find in the World of Ice and Fire as part of the Maester's summary of Eastern legend. The first version of the Lightbringer myth that Salador's son relays to Davos does not give us a cause for the Long Night, but this one does. After describing the descent of the legendary Great Empire of the Dawn into corruption and despair, we read about something called the Blood Betrayal. When the daughter of the Opal Emperor succeeded him as the Amethyst Empress, her envious younger brother cast her down and slew her, proclaiming himself the Bloodstone Emperor and beginning a reign of terror. He practiced dark arts, torture, and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride, feasted on human flesh, and cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. In the annals of the further east, it was the Blood Betrayal, as his usurpation is named, that ushered in the Age of Darkness called the Long Night. Despairing of the evil that had been unleashed on the earth, the Maiden Maid of Light turned her back upon the world, and the Lion of Night came forth in all his wrath to punish the wickedness of men. Alright, so I just got finished saying that the Azor High Legend seems to describe a man who called down moon meteors and caused the Long Night by murdering Nissa Nissa in an act of powerful blood magic. And here is this other story of a guy who caused the Long Night by murdering a woman and performing powerful blood magic. And, oh look, he conspicuously worships a meteorite. Hmm, that's interesting. If Azor Ahai's murder of Nissa Nissa cracked the moon, then it was a murder that caused the Long Night, just like the Bloodstone Emperor's killing of the Amethyst Empress was. So, could the Bloodstone Emperor and Azor Ahai be the same person? Is it possible that... The murder of the Amethyst Empress and the murder of Nissa Nissa, both of which are suggested as the cause of the Long Night, were the same murder. I say the answer is yes. I mean, think about how little sense the Yeetish Long Night narrative makes. First, the Bloodstone Emperor guy murders the Amethyst Empress, and this causes the Long Night. But then another guy, Azor, murders his wife, and somehow light and love are returned to the world. Now, I've got no doubt that heroes did emerge to fight whatever monsters were unleashed during the Long Night, and maybe they used magical flaming swords. And this may be true in the Far East and also in Westeros. But it makes little sense for one blood magic murder to be the most evil act in human history which caused the sun to hide its face, while a similar magical murder is somehow the most virtuous which restored love and light to the world and caused the sun to come back out and smile. In other words, woman stabbing and blood magic aren't necessary evils. They're just evils. You might break the moon. You might cause a generation of darkness. You might summon forth a line of night in all his wrath or the White Walkers in the army of the dead. So just don't try it. Now you can see what I mean when I say that the Azor Ahai legend presents us with a false heroic ideal. Sometimes you just have to do a little blood magic to save the day. No. Sometimes you just have to stab women with a sword to be the hero. Also a hard no. These deeds of Azor High weren't heroism, but rather the most evil acts in the history of the story. If the price of winning a kingdom, or even a war against magical ice demons, requires human beings to sacrifice women and children to work blood magic, well, better the ice demons win. Better that the kingdom not be won. Losing your humanity to achieve victory is defeating yourself, Martin seems to be saying, through the words of Davos and others. 
You know what else Martin has shown us on the pages of A Song of Ice and Fire that sort of punches a huge hole right in the middle of the Machiavellian Azor Ahai is a hero logic? Well, he's shown us that you actually don't need to kill anyone to light a sword on fire with magic. In A Storm of Swords, and on the show for that matter, we see none other than Beric Dondarrion, who is a firewhite running on R'hllor power TM, just like John will probably be, lighting his own sword on fire. <laughs> With his own blood. That's right, no wife stabbing needed. There's no reason why John won't be able to do the same thing too if he's resurrected by Melisandre, which seems likely. And unlike Beric's fragile steel sword, John will have a Valyrian steel sword, which can withstand the magical fire. John should even be able to pull the trick with a dragonglass knife in a pinch, since we know that dragonglass can light up with magical fire. So then, I ask you, if I'm right about all of this, if the Azor High myth is some kind of test for the reader to see if they'll fall into the trap of justifying things they ordinarily would not, simply because they are told that this is necessary by some characters in the story, would George then resolve his story by having John stab Daenerys through the heart? It would have been bad enough if John had stabbed Danny to light his sword on fire and defeat the Night King. I mean, that still would have completely invalidated everything that I'm saying here, and would send the message that yes, sometimes you do have to stab ladies and work blood magic to save humanity, and that would have been most unfortunate. But what we saw on HBO was arguably even worse than that. Danny wasn't willingly sacrificing herself to save people, which she absolutely would be willing to do in my opinion, but instead, John reenacted the forging of Lightbringer simply to put Danny down, and it, it hurts me just to say that quite honestly, but it's true. Now, if you're asking me, this is absolutely not why George created the Azor High Nissa Nissa story and then set up John and Danny as parallels to both Azor High and Nissa Nissa, just so that one could stab the other and simply replay the original actions. If the original blood magic woman stabbing caused the long night, how does it make any sense to present a similar deed as the solution to the final problem in the main story? And by the way, when I say that John and Danny are set up as parallels to Azor High and Nissa Nissa, I actually don't mean John as Azor and Danny as Nissa. Danny does have very strong Nissa Nissa parallels and Amethyst Empress parallels, by the way. But she was also the first person to very clearly and specifically fulfill the prophecy of Azor High returning to wake dragons from stone under a bleeding star. John, just like Daenerys, should definitely be seen as an Azor High Reborn figure too, and I think his resurrection will check some of the prophetic boxes, if you will. But John also symbolizes Nissa Nissa in certain scenes, such as in his murder by the Night's Watch. So why did George do this? Well, for a very important reason. Because Nissa Nissa actually expresses the true heroic ideal of a song of ice and fire, which is self-sacrifice. Now don't get me wrong, I do think that the Bloodstone Emperor version of the story is closer to the truth, and that the Amethyst Empress Nissa Nissa was murdered against her will. We're talking about myth and fable here though, and these types of multifaceted stories always convey more than one idea. Consider the characters in the Lightbringer story as expressions of ideals. On one hand, Azor Ahai is a man willing to commit horrific acts of blood magic to gain magical power, even if it causes great destruction and death. On the other hand, we have the Nissa Nissa in the Azor Ahai story, who's presented as someone who willingly lays their life on the line for the good of humanity. Nissa Nissa is actually the Christ figure of the story, in other words. I guess that makes Azor Ahai the Romans or something. 
I'm not sure. So yes, Danny and John do represent Azor Ahai Reborn in that they will find themselves in possession of powerful magic needed to defeat the demonic forces of the Long Night, just as the ancient tale of Azor Ahai says that Lightbringer was needed to end the Long Night, and just as the Westerosi tale of the last hero leading the Night's Watch against the others during the Long Night has him wielding an unbreakable, White Walker slaying Sword of Dragonsteel, and also receiving some kind of aid from the Children of the Forest, who are magical beings. However, we can also observe that, more than any of the other main characters, John and Danny really are the ones who repeatedly sacrifice their own desires, needs, and reputations in order to protect vulnerable people. John does it most notably by seeing through the anti-wildling prejudice and letting them through the wall to save them at the cost of his own life. But it actually started with John sticking up for Sam Tarly all the way back in the first book. I actually did an entire video series on the true character of Daenerys Targaryen, and the bottom line is that we find Danny using her very first drops of power with the Dothraki to protect victims of war. And of course, her entire Slaver's Bay arc for the past two books has her making sacrifice after sacrifice to try to protect all the refugees and freed slaves who have become her people. As I mentioned a moment ago, the cost of heroic sacrifice for Jon Snow has already included his life, and although he's obviously going to be resurrected, We've seen that that's no picnic in a Song of Ice and Fire either. Beric Dondarrion is definitely making a sacrifice by soldiering on after his death. Or deaths, plural. Six? Six? Is it seven Thoros? And in fact, Beric's entire purpose in remaining is to protect the common people. And this might be another way in which Beric is a foreshadowing for Jon. I wouldn't be surprised if Danny also ends up resurrected at some point before the story is finished and probably running on R'hllor power. But whatever happens, Jon and Danny will no doubt pay cost after cost to do what is right by the end of the story. In this way, Jon and Daenerys will exemplify the self-sacrificial ideal expressed by Nissa Nissa. This is what makes them heroes. This is why so many people like them and identify with them. In a cruel and at times inhumane world, John and Danny often make the kinds of choices that we would make. Hopefully, of course. I mean, maybe you're the Ramsey Bolton type, I don't know. This, then, is why HBO show Danny's sudden left turn into villainy struck most viewers as forced and nonsensical, and above all, inconsistent with her character up to that point. Her book character in particular, but even just the character the show had created. Remember Missandei's speech to John and Davos about the queen that we chose? Anyway, yes, that's right. Right after risking her own life and the lives of her Dothraki, Unsullied, and dragons to save the North and all of Westeros from the others, which is a perfect example of the Nissa Nissa ideal, she suddenly morphed into the opposite type of character, someone willing to sacrifice any number of innocents to gain the throne. This is wildly inconsistent character development, to say the least. And the result was the John Stabs Daenerys scene, which was a total inversion of all the lessons the Azor High legend and a song of ice and fire in general has to teach about violence and murder. Oh yeah. But good news, friends. This crappy ending appears to be something Dave and Dan are claiming as their idea, that's right. The following is taken from a documentary HBO released after season 8 called Duty is the Death of Love, with Dan Weiss speaking. I think the final scene between John and Daenerys is something we came up with sometime in the midst of the third season of the show. The broad strokes of it anyway. But there was a tremendous amount of pressure to get it right, because we know this is not a scene that's giving people what they want. Not giving the people what they want. Well, that's an understatement. I call it not doing the characters justice, but let's keep the video moving. So just compare the we came up with the broad strokes of the John and Danny ending statement to this one by David Benioff, taken from the same documentary interview concerning the 
King Bran part of the ending. Around season three, we went to visit George R. R. Martin, and he writes, and he kind of figures things out as he's writing. When we went to visit him back then, and this is while he was still writing book six, he didn't know yet where the story was going, and he knew a few key things. And one of those key things was that the final king at the end of the story would be Bran. Okay, so George told them, King Bran, but they came up with the broad strokes of the final scene between John and Daenerys. Now, I don't think we even needed this statement to come to the conclusion that George won't end his story by turning Danny into Dragon Hitler and then having John stab her through the heart. I mean, I did stand up and say so loudly right when the episode aired, and I certainly wasn't the only one. But it is nice to have the confirmation. Thanks, guys. As you've hopefully seen today, the Azor High myth presents both a false heroic ideal and a true one. And I have little doubt that all the heroes of the story will be demonstrating self-sacrifice, with John and Danny leading the way, not stabbing one another. Alright folks, thanks for watching, and if you want to get yourself a cool mythical astronomy nickname, just check out the Patreon tab at luciferminslightbringer.com. 